Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And I want to start out today, as I always do, drawing your attention to wealthformula.com. This is the home site for Wealth Formula Podcast, where you get a bunch of resources. You're only getting about 50% of the information that is available when you tune into this podcast. So if you like what you're listening to, go to wealthformula.com. There is an abundance of downloadable educational material to go check out, including my best-selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which is available on Amazon. You can buy it there, or you can simply go to wealthformula.com and download it as a PDF. By the way, you don't even have to go to your computer if you don't get to a computer very often, but you have a cell phone in your hand and you can text. Just type 44222 and type Wealth Formula. One word, don't let the autocorrect screw you up and you will get that book emailed to you. So again, that's 44222 Wealth Formula. Now, as far as today goes, I want to sort of circle back to a topic that we hit on in a widget, in a weekly wealth widget. By the way, you can get those on wealthformula.com too. We had this weekly wealth widget a few weeks back, and it was about basic estate planning. In my view, basic, right? But obviously, it wasn't that basic for some of you. You know, this is the stuff you absolutely have to know and you have to have in order to protect your family in case you die. And I was amazed at the high percentage of people who didn't already have this information. And that's downright scary. And listen, it's again, it's none of your fault. I'm not saying it is. It's just that we don't collectively have a place where we're supposed to go to to get this information and make sure that we are doing the right thing. And listen, no one likes to think about dying, much less planning out what happens when you die. And hopefully you live to be 120. But what if you don't? Do you have young children? I mean, what would you do? What would they do without you? Or or what would your spouse do without you? Do you have a plan? Because this is not something you can ignore. And frankly, it just doesn't go away. You know, I was talking to my lovely PA, Kasha, who's probably listening to this right now. And she was telling me how some of her friends don't like to talk about it because they think of it as sort of bad luck. Well, gosh, that is not smart. I'll tell you, that is not smart. You know, folks, before wealth, and we talk about wealth on this show, and before wealth comes safety and security. It's basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And when safety and security are not met, you know, you're going to have a problem climbing up that pyramid. So safety and security should be planned not only with the here and now in mind, meaning, yeah, you need a place to live, you need a 
You need food and shelter and protection from the big bad wolf, but also careful consideration of the worst case scenarios in life. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, this is something that we talk about in my businesses all the time. One of the things that my job is in my businesses is always to look for what we call icebergs. We look for things that could happen and we try to mitigate the risk of those bad things way ahead of time. So if they do happen, then we have a plan. But that's what estate planning is in general. So this week's guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is going to be really, really important for everyone to listen to. We're lucky to have him. He happens to be my attorney for estate planning and asset protection. And he also happens to be one of the country's foremost experts in both estate planning and asset protection. And that is Mr. Kevin Day. So unless you are 100% sure that you and your family are covered, do not miss this show. We will be right back with Kevin. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Kevin Day. Now, Kevin is one of the leading estate planning and international asset protection attorneys in the United States. He's co-authored numerous books on the subjects of lawsuit protection, offshore money strategies, asset protection, tax havens, and privacy planning. His extensive expertise in the field of lawsuit protection makes him a frequent guest speaker at conferences and seminars throughout the country. Kevin's clients include noted actors, athletes, and numerous high net worth individuals, but also many small business entrepreneurs and high paid professionals like doctors, lawyers, and engineers, people who are listening to the show. And of course, he is my asset protection attorney as well. Thanks for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today, Kevin. Thank you very much, Dr. Buck. (laughs) So let's get started here. Now, Kevin, you do some fairly complicated stuff, which I love, and we'll get into some of that later. But I sent out an email to my list a couple weeks back, and I was talking a little bit about estate planning, and I was sort of astounded by how many people did not have a good concept of even really basic estate planning. And these are people who make you know quite a bit of money and have children, et cetera. So I wanted to back up a little bit and just ask you, so if I'm a doctor and I'm making a few hundred thousand dollars, I've got a young family and maybe I have a net worth of you know maybe a million dollars, nothing too much, and my kids are little, what's the bare minimum I should be doing for asset protection? Oh, my. I actually thought you were going to go back to the foundational things of estate planning, especially if they have children. You would want guardianship provisions in place, which really is the venue of a will. And you want to make decisions of who are going to rear your children. You don't want the government doing that. And without properly naming who would be the guardian, literally family members will come forward Hopefully all of them are good and qualified 
people that you would want rearing your children. But in my particular case, my dad was a sixth grade school teacher. My sister became a school teacher. I like to say I went to the dark side. (laughs) I get my teaching fix by working with you and the people that you're helping through Wealth Formula. And my sister loves children, but she has a very different life, not lifestyle, but life view than my wife and I. Mm -hmm. And her family is from the Midwest, Michigan and Iowa, and all of them have a strong work ethic and kind of a simpler, slower view of the world, which I hope my wife and I continue to hold on to, even though we're on the West Coast. And any of her family members would be good. The court most likely is going to choose the one that has the biggest house and has some extra rooms already. Sure. And that's pragmatic. And they've got 50 other children that they're going to make decisions on that afternoon. The one that we actually chose was the sister that works at Home Depot and her husband's a handyman because it really doesn't mean a lot about career. It's who's going to give the loving environment that's going to slow down and be surrogates for us. Sure. So really, when you have children, most people get to us in their late 30s and 40s and say, I've thought about doing a will or trust or estate plan about five times, and we're finally doing it. And usually it's when they buy their first house or when they have children, when they have the second child. These events kind of make them think about it. But most people, as you found out, don't really tend this. Uh, None of us plan to die soon. So we can do that later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's kind of what I'm getting at a little bit, because, you know, I think the other thing is that we don't necessarily get education on this anywhere in particular. And the thing that comes to mind, yeah, you need a will, right? You need a will. But the email that I sent out that I wanted to sort of comment on was the idea that a living trust is something probably that most people are going to need as well. Yes. Most people have heard mostly from movies, but they also hear wills and trusts and they don't get educated as to what these are. And many people have heard, oh, if my estate is small, there's a quick way through probate, even if I have to go through probate. And that's correct. But most states threshold for a quote unquote small estate is usually around twenty five to thirty thousand dollars. So let's back um, up real quick, Kevin, because I think another thing that I frankly don't think everybody knows is what exactly is probate? Ha yes. Yeah, probate process everybody's heard of, but they don't know exactly what it is. And it essentially is and I'm gonna use my mom as an example. If she gets hit by the proverbial bus, or any of us do, our world freezes. No one has legal authority to work, be on my accounts or run my affairs without government approval. And that is done through a judge in a probate court. So my mom gets hit by the proverbial bus. I cannot go down to her bank and say, Here's the death certificate of my mom. Here's my birth certificate with all kinds of people attesting that I am her son. Not only am I her her trusted son, but I'm an estate planner. I know exactly what I'm doing. The bank is going to say, we don't care. We need one of two things. We need a court order or we need 
the magic language from the legislature, which is called a living trust. And so without any other designation, without a trust, I have to go to probate court. Okay, just to be clear here, because this is an important point, and frankly, one that I don't think I understood very well, a will in of itself doesn't keep you from probate, right? I mean, I think that's a misconception. I think a lot of people, I suspect it's because, you know, probate pays out pretty well for some attorneys, that having a will, regardless of what you have in there, it doesn't protect you from that process, which can be pretty long, right? No, that that is exactly it. And that is the exact perception of people. Oh, I I have a will I did way back when, and therefore I'm not going to go to probate. No, without a probate, it just means that there's a pre-prescribed family tree, a a pre-prescribed inheritance chart. If you have children, it goes to them. If you don't, then it goes up to parents. If they predecessed you, it goes to your siblings and so forth. A will, and they get it immediately. So a will is a way to either give disproportionate shares or items to particular people, but it also allows you to put conditions of inheritance, particularly with younger children, where if I got hit by the proverbial bus, I don't want a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old getting several million dollars. So a will allows it to be regulated, it's just a request to the probate court. Most likely they're going to follow that request because they're busy, but it's just a request to the court. This is the way I would like to do it. Please check it out. (laughs) Yeah. So how long is probate typically? Typically it's two years, even with the simplest of estates. One of the reasons is that going back to my example with my mom, So now I know the bank won't put me on the bank accounts. So I go to court and I ask them, hey, will you put me and or my sister on? Let's say I'm going to put me on. I know what I'm doing. And they say, great. One, we want to check out that you do know what you're doing. But we want your sister and your mom's friends to come forward and say, no, Kevin is the one that she would choose to run her affairs. She thinks that he's wise, he knows financials, and he'll be fair to the beneficiaries. But people might come forward and say, no, she hated him and hadn't seen him for 10 years. Or no, she loved him dearly, but thought he was a financial idiot and wouldn't want him on the accounts. Right. So it's a very archaic process. So the judge really doesn't even look at things for about nine months, giving people time to come forward to agree or complain about who looks like they're going to get signed up to be the uh, new executor. So meanwhile, what's happening to those assets? Say there's a you know an apartment building. What's going on with that apartment building? Oh, the apartment buildings, the homes and everything else let's say in a regular familial uh, relationship where in my case, let's say my sister and I, if we were liquid, we could pay those bills and then the mortgages and so forth and run things and managers if we had apartments and so forth. But I would have to petition the court to get reimbursed. And even if you're well off, if you're smart, if you've been taking Buck Joffrey's advice, your money's deployed. <laughs> right. Your money's deployed. 
I have people of great wealth. You know, we've got an $80 million estate. Well, it's all in real estate and this, that, and the other business partnerships. We only have $150,000 of liquid assets. I need that for myself. I can't uh, use that. So, so you couldn't pull the cash flow from the asset off to pay it? No. I have no authority yet. Wow. So the assets, basically, you've got cash flow that's building up, but it can't be used to pay the mortgage. Well, it can, but I can't. So this is the rub. You had mentioned that you knew that probate was very expensive. Right. Uh, We could bring that up in just a moment. Well, we'll address it now. Most probates and many states actually provided attorneys don't always get paid their normal hourly rate. Sometimes they're set by a schedule in the probate code, and it's usually around 6% of the estate. It's on a sliding scale, 6% for the first few million, 5% for the next couple of million, and 4% for millions after that. So even a small estate, uh, let's say half a million dollars, some attorney is getting $25,000 to probate that which is absolutely crazy, but that also now makes sense why so many estate planners will say, oh, you don't have a $5 million estate, all you need is a will, and it's very inexpensive. Uh, you know, a revocable living trust might be $3,000, but a will, that's only 800 or, or $900. Well, essentially, it's a lost leader because they want to get, you know, $100,000 in legal fees at the time right. of probate. Right. So unless your estate is only $100,000 or so, or probably even less, like $50,000, it's going to be substantially less expensive to get out ahead and get the uh, living trust. And also in that situation, you're cutting out this entire probate time, which if you're concerned about your heirs actually getting what you wanted to leave them (laughs) and not wait two years, you're probably better off, again, spending that money up in front ahead of time. Absolutely. You're giving way too much money to an attorney that's going to file the same five forms, whether you're a half a million dollar estate or a $5 million estate and so forth. The thresholds are very low. In Illinois, they're actually kind of high. They're $100,000 of all assets. Hmm. That's your car, your home, fair market value, not equity. Most states are $25,000, which is a very low threshold. But so here's the rub. Not only is the attorney getting a lot of money, but if you're not liquid enough to pay, in my example, my mom's mortgages on her properties and so forth, the court will appoint a court-appointed trustee that gets paid $200 an hour to pay those bills until I get appointed as the executor or personal representative nine months from now. Wow. So you're, you're taking it from multiple ends there. We'll move on here. But that moral of the story I wanted to bring out to everyone here was the importance of not only having a will, but a trust. Pretty much anybody who's listening to this show in particular, you heard Kevin say, I mean, basically, if your estate is you know more than $25,000 almost, it's something that you really ought to be doing, particularly if you have children. Imagine uh, you know, them having to wait two years and losing all this money in the process to get what they, that they're supposed to get. It's crazy. So that's the moral of the story. So a will and trust would be sort of the absolute bare minimum. Fair? 
Absolutely. And all any of your wealth formula people can either call or email me directly or through you and tell me what state they're in. And I will give them the quote unquote small estate thresholds for whatever state they live in. We'll get into that in the contact information in a bit. Now let's move on to something that is starts to get a little bit more sophisticated. But again, I want to start relatively basic. And that is the other major thing that you do, which is asset protection, right? So let's start out, again, pretty basic here. Let's define asset protection. Yes, and I don't mean to be too flippant about this, but asset protection is doing anything, small or big, that puts you and your family's assets in a better position to keep them if a lawsuit occurs. And so it can be some very small tactics that really don't amount to much or seemingly to much, but actually will help you keep your assets and protect your assets. And we have very full big plans that are appropriate for people, but sometimes you don't need a moat and a giant wall and a catapult. (laughs) All you need is a picket fence to keep the neighbor kid from riding his bicycle through your rose bed. Right, right. Well, so I recently bought a moat, but let's let's say I'm 35. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say I'm 35 years old, you know, my example, and I was just out of surgical training. I had one little kid, but all of a sudden I had a decent income. It was all W-2 income. I didn't really have any assets. And say maybe I just bought a home and that's it. Mm-hmm. Do I need much? What does somebody like that need in terms of asset protection? Which is sort of big, broad, yeah. sweeping strokes. I know it can get kind of detail-y here. Yeah. Actually, the regular wisdom that everyone will have heard and I concur with is put eggs in different baskets. And so typically the first basket is going to be a little LLC to Mm -hmm. separate your professional world from your personal family world. And the way our legal system works is that if somebody enters into a contract with Kevin Day, Inc., and not Kevin Day, they are legally, whether they know it or not, have been put on notice that Kevin Day's personal assets are not susceptible in the event of some harm that Kevin Day Inc. may give to them. So that's interesting because I think, and again, I would go back and say that I'm pretty darn sure that most people who are out there who are starting to, you know, save or, you know, to invest, whether it's just in the equity markets and stocks, bonds and mutual funds or et cetera, don't think they need it anything. They're just putting, you know, their name on an Ameritrade account or whatever and investing directly. And you're saying even at this point, you really should be considering, you know, an LLC. Is that yes. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's two types of liability that an asset protection lawyer kind of looks at. One is what we call internal liability. Internal liability means the service or product or equipment or real estate that is the thing of value is the thing that can also bring harm. And so that's usually why in businesses we will form an LLC 
or Inc. I prefer LLCs, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, because it segregates that asset from coming over into our personal world or into our other investments. The other type of liability is external liability, where it has nothing to do with the asset that's valuable, because real estate can be very valuable, but it can also be the thing that the boiler blows up or the stairwell falls down and sues, creates a lawsuit. But a portfolio or passive investment has zero liability attached to it. But when you hit somebody in the crosswalk, they're going to ask you, what do you own and how is it held? Because we want to take it. So holding passive investments might be another one of those baskets to put those eggs in a different basket than those things held in your personal name or in your business's names. Right. So what we're doing is we're trying to effectively, if you have your, say, stocks, bonds, whatever it is, you've got it in an LLC. So if you're getting sued personally, in theory, the LLC would protect whatever's in there. That is a particular reason why I said I prefer LLCs now over corporations because they will have a roadblock, not a moat, as you said earlier, but there is a roadblock. If somebody sues you personally, they're going to ask, what do you own? And, and, and if you said, I own some Microsoft stock in my own name, they're going to get the judge to issue an attachment order, which is a taking order to take that and get it reissued into the creditor's name. If you own ABC Inc., a corporation, the sheriff or the, the marshal will get an attachment order from the judge that usually allows them to do one of two things. They can take the Microsoft stock out of ABC Inc. and give it to the creditor, or they can give shares of ABC Inc. and give it to the creditor. And if they own ABC Inc., then they own the Microsoft stock. If you have Microsoft stock in an LLC or partnership, an attachment order cannot issue by law, only a charging order. And a charge is a lien. And so the lien means that the creditor has to wait for it. And it usually, but not always, it certainly is an inspiration to get them to settle for less than the judgment because they have to wait. And so a charging order is very valuable in an asset protection plan. And a little LLC, depending on what state you're putting it in, may only be you know, $900, and that's cheap insurance to segregate your growing investment portfolio from any freak car accident right. that you might have. Although the tricky thing here, and I'm trying to understand how... I mean, effectively, your your money would be sort of frozen in that LLC. I mean, if there was a charging order and a lien, right? I mean, is there a way that if you had money in there that you could actually move it out without paying the creditor? No. Well, without adding an, a lawsuit-proof trust, but we're trying to keep down yeah. simpler yeah. strategies at this point. So at that point, it's mostly a deterrent. And presumably, Correct. if we're talking about if we add one layer on and say, OK, now we've got some property. And I think a lot of people who own property 
rental properties, et cetera, know, okay, well, now we're probably getting to an area where most people know that you should be owning these things in some kind of an LLC. But at that point, you know, you've got, you know, usually a lot of internal liability, external liability, and of something of significant value. So is an LLC enough? Say you've got a million-dollar apartment building. An LLC owning the apartment building will protect your home and your portfolio and your other rentals from liabilities that happen on the premises. So a boiler blows up, especially in apartment. I mean, it can be in a single-family residence. Most people don't have insurance for four lives. They have insurance for slip and falls, a gash, perhaps some kind of mold problem, but a significant event on a property will get outside of normal insurance limit. So you'll lose that particular property. But the point of an LLC is not having it come and take your home, your investment portfolio, and your other rentals. Right. So a lot of times you hear about the next level up being not necessarily a, to the point where you've got a trust involved, but you've got a holding company. What what good does a holding company do you, if at all? And how would you implement that? Well, the holding company is usually one, it does throw up another wall. It's still in the chain of ownership if somebody is suing you personally. But if you have a holding company that has at arm's length contracts to manage or deal with the assets down below, the law does require that these business entities are recognized. And if you're pulling money away from those assets that make money and you're not having to spend them to live on, let's say you have your W-2 income, that's plenty to live on. You actually have extra money. That's why you've been able to buy some rentals you want the rental income to continue to grow to buy another item that's going to make money for you. If that money's up at the holding company, then that will segregate it from the liabilities down below. Right. It'll protect the rental money, but it won't protect the property itself, obviously. So because you hear so much about the holding company is, well, that that's what you need a holding company. But to me, again, it doesn't seem to be doing as much as sometimes we think it is. At that point, the next level up. So how do you get more protection? Let's talk about that. Now you've got a you know decent portfolio of rental properties, et cetera. And you're thinking to yourself, gosh, I'm making decent money. I've, I've done a pretty good job of creating wealth and accumulating assets. What's the next step up? Well, we actually have two different directions that we can go now. One is in entity formation using a lawsuit proof trust. And the other is not in entity, but in strategy, which is the equity stripping. Right. And so I know that you're familiar with both. Which route do you think? Well, let's do this because I think probably equity stripping is probably a good place to start because let's go back to the example where we have an LLC and there's a million dollar property in there. You happen to have $250,000 of equity in that property and it's throwing off cash flow. Let's first talk about, Kevin, if if you want to just sort of define what equity stripping strategy looks like and then in practice how that would work for that scenario. Yes. In this particular case, we're talking about a very specific equity stripping, and that is from your own estate plan 
on your own estate plan. So we all know that we can equity strip by going to the local bank and putting a lien. And essentially the effect is the amount that I can get with a loan is now not attachable by third parties. The problem is threefold. One, the bank never gives you 100% loans. They're gonna give you an 80% loan, which means you still have 20% exposure. The next thing is you have to do something with the money. And creditors actually would prefer to have cash and portfolio rather than a b- active business or rental properties. They want cash. And so you're actually converting the property into something that is more desirable to the creditor. The third thing you have to worry about is making at least as much and preferably more, but at least as much as what the bank is charging you in interest. So that's not very practical from a purely lawsuit protection point of view. It has too many moving parts. That's not the way the people that you're advising aren't making money by this strategy. So what we do is create our own equity stripping strategy. And I'll give as an example, we'll form a little Nevada or Wyoming company where we have privacy. The client's name won't be in the public record. We make it look like a hard money lender, Golden Mountain Lending or Winchester Funding, something like that. And we create the proper documentation to create real consideration. And let's presume that you did get a loan. So Union Bank is on first on the apartment building that you have, but you've done well and it's only 50% of the equity is covered by their mortgage. So we're gonna have Golden Mountain Lending have a second deed of trust on it, soaking up all the rest of the equity. So if somebody is thinking about suing and is targeting you, We've just turned an asset into a non-asset on your books. There's an asset is not an asset if there's no equity in it. Just for clarity, too, for people listening out there, these are real, right? I mean, this, there's a real lien that if somebody goes and searches, they're going to find a lien. It's not something that we've made up that you know a creditor could not find. Oh, exactly. That is the legal requirement. You've always might have heard the term first in time, first in right. And it's not first in time to the legal obligation. It's first in time to the public record. So in this strategy, we will want to record the liens to this Golden Mountain lending because that is giving notice to the entire world that there is a prior creditor. So any creditors after that moment have to stand third or fourth in line. And it's a real lien. Right. I mean, that's the other thing is that if you are executing this properly, and this is why, by the way, you should be using Kevin when you do this and not anybody, because I think this is stuff that has to be executed properly. You have proper consideration in court at that point. Right. I mean, it's the real lien. You've shown why uh, there is this lien against the property. Correct. Correct. We have found in real litigation cases where events rather have occurred that litigation in a few cases they're glory stories but they happen every year where we know something occurred people lawyers were looking into our clients affairs and they never even got served 
because we made them look like a turnip in the public record. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And so that's interesting because when I think about the equity stripping and then put it in the context of, you know, I think what a lot of people are talking about with holding companies, if you've got a good equity stripping strategy, is it even worthwhile to even think about the holding company or do you just equity strip everything and, and there's nothing there anyway? The equity stripping really is the power of the, the lawsuit protection. Right. A holding company mostly is valuable for administrative ease of the client because mm-hmm. one apartment building or one rental is fine. You don't want three different bank accounts. You want a contract yeah. that puts the money into one account so you have less of a headache. It's more value there on that administrative side rather than the lawsuit protection side. Right, and that's actually really valuable, Kevin, because I know for a fact that it, a lot of people are really relying on that holding company to do something probably it really may not be doing. Okay, so now let's go into the advanced program. <laughs> Okay, so now let's create something that would make any creditor potentially turn around and run the other way on first sight. What would that be? Yes. Well, the irrevocable trusts, whether they're offshore or domestic, are in the eyes of the law an ultimate owner, not just a legally recognized third party owner. Your company that you own 100% of actually is a legally recognized third party from you. That's why the IRS demands that you charge yourself interest, even though it might be the least allowed by law. But if you get a loan from your company, you need to have an interest rate. You need to have a contract. So there's all these formalities that the law requires, even if it's you and you. But because you're still the shareholder or member in the LLC of these underlying companies, the chink in the armor, so to speak, is that if the liability comes to you personally, it has nothing to do with the business or asset or service that you provide. They're suing you personally. It comes down that chain of ownership, whether it's into a company that owns an LLC that owns the apartment building. There can be three companies or 16 If they get to take the first one, they have everything down that chain. So irrevocable trusts are ultimate owners. In our legal system, we only have two ultimate owners, a flesh and blood human, you, nobody owns you, and nobody owns an irrevocable trust. And that's one of several reasons why they're lawsuit proof. And so what we want to do is start looking asset by asset, company by company, and decide what is zero or very low liability and get it out of your name and put it into the irrevocable trust. You know, before I started working with you and I heard the term irrevocable trust, the thing that came into my mind was, well, well, gosh, I mean, if it's irrevocable, then I can't ever touch that money again. (laughs) Right. So, and that is a good perception. If you're doing an irrevocable trust, a red flag should go up because irrevocable means not changeable. However, in our legal system, what people have learned, even though they don't know where they've learned it, the irrevocable trust in the United States until 1987 was, let's say, use a nuclear family as as the example, a grandparent or a parent putting the asset that they currently own into an irrevocable trust for their children or grandchildren. And therefore that 
person setting up the trust could no longer access those assets. So you didn't want to do that unless you had enough to start gifting away to your children and grandchildren. All that changed in 1987 when the U.S. signed the Hague Convention on Trust. Not only did we sign it, we were one of the main proponents of it. And that changed our world for entrepreneurs and high net worth professionals. They could set up an irrevocable trust and name themselves as the beneficiary. So in drafting, uh, we aren't drafting this for Carnation grandparent, not knowing what their grandchildren's personalities will be and what kinds of restrictions and safeguards. So let's put a lot in there just to be safe and smart. We're being the secretary and scribe for you, the entrepreneur. And how do you want your irrevocable trust written? Trustee, give me anything whenever I want it. Make me happy whenever I ask, <laughs> right. unless I'm asking under duress. So if I have a lawsuit going on and the judge has asked me to get the stuff back and then I ask you to give me the stuff back so I can give the judge, that's when you're not supposed to give it to me. And even though it's so broadly to take care of liberally the person that's the beneficiary, that one restriction is enough to make it an irrevocable trust under U.S. law. So in practical terms, how do these things get structured? I mean, obviously, there's ways to do irrevocable trusts in the United States. There, You could do it offshore. How do you get to that point and decide which way you're going to go and why would you go a certain way? Yes. Well, the one more step before that, as you had mentioned, we have in 1997, the U.S. started passing similar laws in some states. We're up to 15 states that allow irrevocable trust where you can name yourself as a beneficiary. And it really comes down to expense. The domestic versions are $8,000 for these types of lawsuit-proof trusts. And I think everybody would agree that's cheap insurance to get something that's truly and legally out of your name, that you can mm -hmm. use exaggerated terms. You can thumb your nose to the creditor if you set this up prior to any liability and show them exactly what you've done. And right. the law should still support it. So we'd rather rely on privacy and not letting them know where all these buckets of money are because then they stop salivating. But if we had to show it, we want it to work anyway. And $8,000 is actually very inexpensive to get this kind of lawsuit protection. Right. It will cover any exception in insurance policies. It doesn't care whether there's exceptions. It doesn't care whether the damage is higher than insurance caps that you've got on your insurance. It gets things out of your name, which means your creditors can't get it. So the thing with offshore trusts, they're not inexpensive. At the very, uh, we have them at the high end at 48,000. Our least expensive is 18,900. Most of the ones we set up are around twenty-seven, twenty-eight thousand dollars $28,000. And so why would somebody want to spend that much money and at what thresholds? Right, exactly. Yeah, because um, you just mentioned in terms of the domestic ones, I think you, I believe I remember you liked Alaska, right? And these you're looking at, you know, third, a quarter, and it sounds like they're pretty robust. 
Yes. Uh, you know, instead of $28,000, you are spending $8,000. So why would someone want to go offshore when we have these completely legal, they have eroded in bankruptcy court cases, but bankruptcy court cases are the difference between Venus and Mars. The law does not bleed over or act as precedent in normal civil cases. And we've had no attack on these domestic uh, asset protection trusts yet in any civil cases. So even if you're in a state that hasn't passed the law, we can still form uh, a trust in you know, North Dakota, Nevada, Alaska, and they, under the fair faith and credit between the states of the U.S. Constitution, you're allowed to set up trusts in other states and, and they're still considered lawful. Yeah. So what brings you to the next level then? Because <laughs> why would somebody spend this $28,000 or twenty five or even the eighteen nine? Because we've seen too many very bizarre and non-logical cases occur in U.S. courts. And sometimes you even have a judge who is has some wisdom that says, I am so sorry. They'll put this actually in the public record to the defendant that just lost the case. I am so sorry that we have to read the verdict this way. But because of this precedent or the way this statute is written, even though you're not the bad guy here, you still get a $2 million judgment against you. Peculiar things happen where the burglar admits to being there to burglarize your house, but when they fell through the skylight onto the glass coffee table, somehow you had a duty of care to your burglar not to have a glass there, and they were lacerated a, a bunch, and now the homeowner that was getting robbed has to pay $3 million. We have people win cases that sued the grocery store for spilled water that she fell and landed badly and cracked a hip. And the videotape showed that it was her son's sippy cup that just spilled there and she slipped and they win. So just bizarre things happen. And people say, okay, the U.S. law says if I set up a trust in Isle of Man or Cook Islands or Bahamas or Mauritius, they're going to have a plaintiff to bust that trust will have to fly to that country and sue under that country's laws. It removes <clears throat> U.S. court jurisdiction under U.S. law. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. And that's one of several reasons. So that's what really creates not only the, I think, the actual penetrability of these things, but it also creates sort of a, an additional hurdle for any prosecuting attorney or anybody else who actually has to put effort into this to try to make some money. Yes. Well, they're not a barrister there in the Isle of Man. Right. They're out of a job. Got it. In order to try to penetrate this, you have to find your own barrister in the Isle of Man. Right. Is that is that fair? And then to, to try to fight this in the Isle of Man. That is correct. And there's no contingency fee attorneys in most of the rest of the world. That, right. that was unique to the U.S. We've infected one or two countries, but none of the jurisdictions that have this lawsuit protection type of, of legislation have contingency fee lawyers. So you're going to have to put up real cash to run the case. And we're the only country in the world that is not a loser pay system. The rest of the world says if you run a case and lose, you have to pay 
that person's all their fees and costs, mm -hmm. which makes the person more responsible in thinking about how successful they think they will be, even if they feel they truly were harmed. If they don't have the evidence behind it, they still might not run the case. They're going to be more judicious. Here in the United States, there's no incentive to be cautious or smart or anything. It's a lotto system. Yeah, no kidding. So I think a lot of the doctors out there are feeling it right now, what we're talking about. And this is, uh, you know, we see sort of frivolous stuff all the time. Kevin, this has been fantastic. Now, tell me in terms of your practice, it's Day and Associates. I believe it's, it's day-law.com, right? Day-law.com. Yes. You know, obviously, I've really enjoyed working with you myself and give you a ringing endorsement. But also give give our audience a little bit of background on how your firm is different. I know we talked about a little bit in the introduction, but, you know, tell us what you guys are all about, who your ideal client or your typical clients are and that sort of thing. I really do enjoy the education side. And I guess I'm going to attribute that to my dad's gene and my job as an attorney is to protect you from all those nasty lawyers. And there's unfortunately too many of them and they're being hatched every day. So my job is to try to do whether even on the estate planning, my job is to try to emancipate the client from lawyers and the big cost of probate and the big cost of running a lawsuit. We want to change the paradigm, not only so they can't get the asset, but we want to give them all the disincentive to even start a lawsuit. And we can do the planning to do that. And because we've enjoyed success, I wrote a bunch of books in the early 90s and there weren't any practice guides. So I was on <clears throat> all the initial speaking series back in the early days. And so I get referrals from all over the country and I enjoy the small entrepreneur that has a million dollars and more than half of that's their home. So they're just getting started. The protection of their home and their little bit of investments is almost more critical to their lifestyle than somebody who's been around for a while, had the opportunity to build a large estate they can get lawsuit and their lifestyle isn't going to change that much. The smaller entrepreneur is where I feel I really need to, within their budget, give them a roadmap for one of where to build two so that they're not wasting money in the interim, having these little side developments that we toss out next year as they get bigger. We want a roadmap and we want to build in the right direction, but we want to stay within reasonable budgets. Right. And you do actually do some free consultations as well. Is that right? Absolutely. We normally give a half an hour free consultation, but to all of Dr. Joffrey's people, we give an hour free consultation. That's fantastic. So hopefully people out there, I highly recommend you get on the phone. And it's really amazing to me how many of you, listen, I'm not trying to guilt any of you out there, but I'm I'm shocked by how few of you have really adequate plans here from estate planning and asset protection. And, you know, the goal, obviously, you know, on the show is to talk, we talk about building wealth, but you also have to preserve it. And it just takes one little fender bender and it doesn't even have to be you. It could be 
you know, somebody uh, on your property, you know, trips and falls or something like that. And, and before you know it, all this money you're, you're working for and all these assets that you've accumulated over time, you, you're suddenly putting them at risk. So I highly recommend that anyone who is in that situation where, you know, you really haven't addressed some of these things that we've talked about today, contact Kevin's office at day-law.com. And if you forget that, you can also just email me at buck at wealthformula.com and I'm happy to connect you with his office. So Kevin, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I've always enjoyed the people that are learning so much from Wealth Formula and, and from what you provide them. I hope you all enjoyed that great discussion with Kevin Day. Kevin is such a great guy, salt of the earth. Generally speaking, uh, you know, attorneys sometimes are not the most likable people in the world, but Kevin is so likable. He's such a great guy and he is so smart. So I highly recommend for those of you who don't at least have the estate planning part of this, consider contacting Kevin. Obviously, there's lots of attorneys out there, but in my experience, one of the things you got to be real careful about is that not all attorneys, just because they do the same kind of stuff, are created the same. And, you know, when we first got our living trusts done, got them from some guy who was supposed to be specialized in the area of estate planning. And it turns out he totally screwed some stuff up. And I figured that out from another attorney I had after him. And so you just don't want mistakes on this stuff. This is really important paperwork to get right. So I highly recommend that. Check Kevin out. You know, I also use him for asset protection. He's as good as they get. So that's the call to action for this week. And hopefully this was helpful. Probably not the sexiest of topics out there, but it's something you got to have, right? It's all about safety and security. So with that, I will leave you. This is Buck Jaffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.